Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair and this is Ideas. Welcome to the second program in our series Religion and the New Science. In tonight's program you're going to be introduced to four men who have each contributed to the emergence of a new worldview in science. They are theoretical physicist David Bohm. I think that this distinction between science and philosophy, this rigid distinction, is wrong. Everybody is controlled by philosophy and his science is pervaded by philosophy and to pretend that it has nothing to do with philosophy is confusing. Inventor and chemist James Lovelock. If you think of it, if the environment and the life are inseparable, it's a single indivisible process. Rocks really truly are alive. Plant physiologist Rupert Sheldrake. Biologists have accepted the physics of the 19th century and are trying to mold biology in the image of what is now an outdated kind of physics. And physical chemist and Nobel laureate Ilya Prigogine. The world around us and the world in us tend to converge today. And that is, I think, the beauty of our present time, that we begin through the change in science to be able to dream at least about a more unified culture. The dream of a more unified culture is what this series is about. Last week's program concluded with an examination of how classical science tended to divide reality into opposed realms of matter and spirit. This week we look at new ideas and approaches in science which are tending to heal this division. Religion and the New Science is written and presented by David Cayley. Tonight's program is an introduction to the ideas of four contemporary scientists. But before we get to that, let me explain a little bit about why I think they all belong in a program about religion and science. I grew up, as perhaps you did, with the sense that religion and science were somehow opposed to each other. Religion was concerned with the spiritual, with the meaning of life, and it told a story which seemed, in scientific terms, highly implausible. Science was concerned with the material, with the real world, which it looked on with a kind of heroic detachment. This was the era of the two cultures, the 1950s, when C.P. Snow's famous phrase was very much in the air, and a great gulf was fixed between the sciences and the humanities. Being wordy and bookish, I was assigned to the side of the humanities, and except for a few sparks of interest that never really managed to start a fire, I saw no reason to be interested in science. Later, I began to see that my image of science was wrong. My image of religion was wrong, too, but that will have to wait until next week, when I'll talk about how I think science and religion can be related. Tonight, I want to focus only on the changes which I now believe have taken place in science, changes which I think pave the way for a new relationship with religion. The image of science with which I grew up is what I would now call classical science, the science which emerged out of the scientific revolution of the 17th century. At the risk of being pedantic, let me try and boil it down to four basic principles. The first is that mind and matter are not essentially related. The second, that matter is ultimately composed of some sort of hard material particles. The third is that nature obeys absolute and eternal laws. And the last, that the scientist can give an account of nature which is complete, objective, and universal. 
The sum of these principles was called the mechanical philosophy. It viewed nature as a great machine, without spirit and without spontaneity, and it lives on today as part of a deeply ingrained cultural sense of what the world is really like. What I want to argue here is that all of these basic principles of classical science are being slowly overcome at the leading edges of contemporary science. And what the four scientists whom I want to present to you tonight have in common is that they all are somehow part of this change. The first of them is theoretical physicist David Bohm. But before I introduce him, I first have to introduce the startling developments in modern physics which provided the starting point for his career. The best way to begin, I think, is to tell you about a remarkable experiment that was carried out a few years ago by physicist Alain Aspe and his colleagues at the University of Paris. The experimenters observed a calcium atom as it emitted a pair of photons, or light particles, which traveled at the speed of light in opposite directions. Then they changed the polarization of one of the photons and found that the other photon changed its polarization simultaneously. At the time of the measurement, the particles were many meters apart. No communication between them was possible unless that communication had taken place at a speed greater than the speed of light, something expressly ruled out by the theory of relativity. And yet, somehow, the one knew what had happened to the other. As weird as it was, Aspe and his colleagues were not surprised by this result. It was exactly what they had expected from the predictions first made by the infant science of quantum mechanics 60 years before. Quantum mechanics began in the early years of this century with a series of discoveries which revolutionized classical atomic theory. Typical of these discoveries was the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. It asserted that there is a limit in principle to how much an observer can learn about the subatomic world, that part of the picture will always be out of focus. For example, whenever we try to observe an electron, the light we use to make the observation will change the electron's position in an unpredictable way. To say where the electron would have been had we not made the observation is impossible. The electron was displaying other mysterious qualities as well like the feat which eventually wanted a place in everyday English, the quantum leap, whereby it moves from one position to another without apparently having traversed any distance in between. The physicists who were working on this problem finally concluded that the electron was not so much a particle as a probability which sometimes appeared as a particle. Where or what it was in between remained shrouded in mystery. These discoveries were deeply unsettling to the physicists who made them. Werner Heisenberg, for example, recalled pacing the streets of Copenhagen after a late-night discussion with fellow physicist Niels Bohr and asking himself, can nature possibly be as absurd as it seemed to us in these atomic experiments? There was also great disagreement among the concerned physicists about how to interpret these new findings. The interpretation which finally won the day reflected the influence of Werner Heisenberg and Niels Bohr and came to be called the Copenhagen Interpretation after Bohr's native city. It said that quantum mechanics could make no decisive statement about the objective situation in nature. It could only give a kind of recipe for the behavior of atomic particles. 
But this simply begged the question which had animated physicists ever since the ancient Greek philosophers first asked it. What is the world really made of? Could reality be no more than a probability? Einstein summarized his dissatisfaction in his famous epigram, God does not play dice with the universe. And this, finally, is where David Bohm comes into the story. Bohm is an American who eventually settled in England, where he taught for many years at the University of London. As a young physicist, Bohm originally adopted Niels Bohr's Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, but then grew dissatisfied with its failure to question the nature of reality itself. Living in Princeton, with his first book on quantum mechanics just published, he discovered Common Cause with Albert Einstein. Einstein had been dissatisfied with this approach from the very beginning. He called it the tranquilizer philosophy, meaning that it was, it was a way of avoiding facing these questions. Now, when, after I finished my book, I sent a copy to Bohr, a copy to Pauli, and a copy to Einstein, to a few other physicists. Well, uh, Bohr never answered. Pauli answered quite enthusiastically. And Einstein liked the book very much, and he, since he was, we were in Princeton together, he asked if we could talk together. And so we met and several times and uh, discussed uh, the whole question. And essentially, he felt that was the question of objective reality, that the quantum theory may have given correct, does give correct statistical results, but it, it does not have correct concepts. It's incomplete. It doesn't really... It's rather like a theory of medical statistics, which has no concepts as to what causes disease, but just simply gives some results that are correct, but does not give you any clue what the disease actually means, you know, as an individual process. And he felt that one needed to look for some uh, notion of reality which would not depend on being connected to an observing equipment. The reference to observing equipment here reflects Bohr's view that in an experimental situation, the means of observation are part of what is observed. In other words, in the realm of quantum mechanics, there is no reality in itself apart from someone's act of observing it. David Bohm came to the conclusion that physicists said they agreed with this view only because they hadn't really thought through what it means. It has been said that most physicists come to praise Bohr, but they think like Einstein. <laughs> there's a confusion going on. The physicist really believes there's a particle there. You see, if you took... I saw this happen in, a, in an audience, a physicist, if, if you ask all the physicists who believe the particle is there to raise their hand, most of them do. If you ask them to how many of them support Bohr, the same number do. <laughs> but in fact, Bohr would deny that there has any meaning to discuss that there is a particle there. So this shows that uh, Bohr's point of view is not understood, and there's a sort of a... On, on the informal language, there is great confusion. David Bohm decided that the problem with Bohr's approach was that it took for granted the very thing it ought to have questioned, the heritage of classical physics. It was obvious that classical concepts couldn't adequately describe what was going on, but instead of scrapping them, the Copenhagen interpretation merely made them fuzzy and ambiguous. Perhaps, Bohm reasoned, what was actually required was a whole new framework of explanation. A particle <clears throat> may be something far more complex than uh, we had supposed, you see, something complex enough to respond to information in a way rather than uh, being pushed around mechanically. The ordinary idea is that the 
the, the more finely you analyze the matter into bits, the simpler they become. This would say that they may not be, become simpler, they may become more subtle. And it's rather like a crowd of human beings may behave in, in a rather uh, uh, gross mechanical way, whereas the individuals are far more subtle. The idea that reality might grow more subtle rather than more simple at the threshold of the vanishingly small led David Bohm to hypothesize what he called an implicate order. Think back to the Aspe experiment, in which the two photons seemed to know what was happening to each other, despite the lack of any demonstrable connection between them. Or to the phenomenon of the quantum leap, in which a particle jumps from here to there without ever seeming to have been anywhere in between. The implicate order explains where the electron is in between here and there, or how the photons remain connected even when they're out of touch, so to speak. It says that these quantum phenomena in effect unfold from some more subtle order beyond time and space. The electron doesn't move from here to there at all. It unfolds out of the implicate order, enfolds back into the implicate order, and then unfolds again. It's like a cartoon, a series of separate pictures which give the illusion of continuous motion. The concept may seem strange, but then so are the phenomena it's trying to account for. In quantum mechanics, the motion mathematically is a process which has actually been called by mathematicians enfoldment and unfoldment. And uh, it's exemplified by the hologram in which uh, waves from a whole object are enfolded in each part of a photographic plate and recorded there. And then if you uh, shine light on it again, those waves will unfold to produce a three-dimensional image of the object. But the important point is that every part of the plate contains an image of the whole object, although if you take more and more of the plate, you get a better, more detailed image and a better image, right? But it's always the whole object. So that says that the whole ob information about the whole object is enfolded in each part. And this is characteristic of the movement of waves. For example, waves coming through your eye enfold the whole room, and they are unfolded onto the retina and into the brain, where you get an impression of the room. Now, waves can from the whole universe enter a telescope and are unfolded onto the image. So you could say the universe is so constructed that everything is unfolding and unfolding all the time, and that's why you can know about it wherever you are. What does the, your view say to the classical mind-matter dualism? Well, it suggests that we don't need it. You see, if you look at mind, it seems much more in an implicate order than quantum mechanical matter. For example, even the word in thought, we have the word implicit, which literally means enfold. But this suggests that one thought enfolds another, and it unfolds into another thought, which unfolds into another, and so on. And you see, the unfoldment has this pr property that the whole unfolds into the part, and the part unfolds into the whole. So any thought unfolds into the whole nervous system and affects the emotions and, and muscular actions and so on, and everything in the nervous system will unfold into thoughts. If you look at this, you see much evidence uh, that the unfolded order is really primary in mind. That Descartes implicitly recognized this because Descartes made a distinction between matter, which he called extended substance, and made of separate bits, and mind, which he called thinking substance. And insofar as he distinguished them, it implied that he did not say thoughts were extended or separate, that uh, thoughts are not extended in any space or not separated. You see, they are all enfolded in each other. That's really was implied in what Descartes said. So the, the implicate order is even more suitable for mind than it is for matter, and this suggests the possibility of relating mind and matter this way. 
whereas Descartes found no natural way to relate them because they were so different. In fact, he proposed that God was the main relationship, that God put clear and distinct ideas into the mind, and, uh, and this corresponded to separate objects in the extended order. That seemed arbitrary, but in any case, people no longer accept that explanation on the whole, and therefore they're left with no explanation of how the two are related. Now, if they have the same basic order, then they can be related. For David Bohm, mind and matter are not separate substances, but in effect, the opposite ends of a continuum. The implicate order, he says, may give way to levels of even greater subtlety, culminating at last in mind. And indeed, even the superficial quantum phenomena appear to have at least certain mental aspects. Think again of the uncanny behavior of the photon pair and the Aspect experiments. But to say that mind and matter are aspects of the same process does not mean that the world is like our thoughts, full of differences and divisions. On the contrary, Bohm considers that the primary quality of reality is wholeness, an undivided wholeness in flowing movement, as how he lyrically describes it in his most recent book. Physicists sometimes criticize Bohm's work because it yields no testable predictions and therefore cannot be easily proved or disproved. They say he is a philosopher and not a scientist. But the questions raised by quantum mechanics were philosophical, and unlike most of his colleagues, David Bohm met them head on. To me, therefore, his work represents a reunion of science and philosophy, which is actually required by the discoveries of science. It deserves the name by which science first called itself, natural philosophy. In the late 1970s, Nobel laureate Ilya Prigogine and co-author Isabel Stengers brought out a book called La Nouvelle Alliance, later issued in English under the title Order Out of Chaos. The book was a virtual manifesto for a new science. Classical science, Prigogine and Stengers argued, was a kind of covert theology. It described the world from a standpoint outside of nature, a standpoint to which man had access because he was made in the image of God. And because the scientific observer stood outside of nature, he stood apart from the flow of time. In the closed world of Newtonian science, time essentially didn't matter. The motions which classical mechanics described were all simple and reversible, and so time could flow from the future to the past as easily as from the past to the future. But for human beings living within nature, time does matter. It matters desperately. Irreversible change is the very heart of our experience of the world. Nothing in our lives can run backwards. It follows, for Prigogine, that when the simple and reversible motions of Newtonian mechanics were generalized into a worldview, the cultural consequences were disastrous. A scientific worldview which excluded human experience could only produce a deep division between science and what came to be called the humanities. The battle to humanize science has therefore involved introducing the idea of irreversible change into the static 
an eternal world of classical mechanics. For Ilya Prigogine, the story begins with the discovery of the science of heat, thermodynamics. In the beginning of the 19th century, starts also a new area of physics, uh, and that is the formulation of the laws of thermodynamics. It's just 120 years ago that uh, Clausius has formulated his laws in a specially concise and powerful way by saying the energy of the world is uh, constant and the entropy of the world is increasing. That is really a remarkable statement that indeed 120 years ago for the first time somebody was saying that the world has a his history. And the history, of course, is something rather disappointing because increasing entropy means uh, traditionally increasing randomness, uh, exhaustion of uh, natural resources and so on. So it is not astonishing that this thermodynamic worldview with this pessimistic outlook is in a sense also the outcome of the industrial age. The industrial age which was of course preoccupied by the exhaustion of industrial resources. And that was, I think, the first crack in the Newtonian picture. Classical time was repetitive. The time of thermodynamics was a time running down. And in a sense, what we try to find today is uh, perhaps you could call it a third time in which there is, we look for something in which not only things can run down, but also things are created. Prigogine's search for this third creative time would not prove easy. Despite the discovery of the laws of thermodynamics, irreversibility remained no more than an artifact to many physicists. Max Planck called it the effect of the introduction of ignorance into the laws of physics. And Einstein, on the death of his dear friend Michel Besso in 1955, wrote, For us believing physicists, the distinction between past, present, and future is only an illusion, even if a stubborn one. But Prigogine finally found the constructive time he was looking for in the world of non-equilibrium systems, systems in a highly excited, turbulent, or energetic state. First of all, I studied what happens uh, near equilibrium, you see, but that was uh, the, uh, the word discovered by Onzaga and others, which was already very interesting, but nothing so striking was going on there. But then I slowly extended my work to situations far from equilibrium. And that was really the surprise, because far from equilibrium, you can have completely new situations. In other words, situations near equilibrium would become unstable when you push them further away from equilibrium. You may have then the appearance of new coherent structures involving uh, billions of molecules and macroscopic time. In other words, you see uh, uh, the world in a different way because you, have, you begin to have a lot of new dynamical structures which would not be possible to observe in equilibrium or near equilibrium condition. It was his mathematical description of these non-equilibrium systems, or dissipative structures, that won Ilya Prigogine the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1977. Some examples are given by David Peat, the co-author of The Looking Glass Universe, a study of the new science of David Bohm, 
Ilya Prigogine and others. Thermodynamics had always dealt with things close to equilibrium, things that happened gently. Prigogine pushed it into things that were far from equilibrium, systems in which there was a constant influx of matter. And when he looked at those systems, he found that they would spontaneously develop their own structures. It's something you may, tonight, if you look, see on the top of your coffee cup as it's cooling. But if you took a pan of water, you heat it at the bottom. Initially, the heat tries to get into the cooler areas, areas above by just conduction. If you heat it a little faster, you get a lot of turbulent movement within, within the, the fluid. It's sort of it's moving around. It's lots of little currents competing. At some point, that random movement just isn't sufficient to get the heat from the bottom to the top because the, hotter, the hot water at the bottom is lighter. It's trying to rise. The water at the top is cooler. It's trying to fall. The things are competing. So you essentially get a lot of you get chaos. You have chaos in that pan of water. You heat it a bit more, suddenly there's a dramatic transition. The chaos turns into order. And what happens is you get very orderly macroscopic flows, major flows within the liquid. And you get a series of cells forming on the top as within the pan the, the liquid begins to circulate in a very orderly fashion. And uh, if you look to the glancing angle at the top of the pan or at the top of a cooling cup of coffee, you may see a lot of little hexagonal cells on the top. And as Prigogine says, you know, this is the most amazing phenomena. Suddenly, out of random movement of billions of molecules, they've begun to move as a whole, coherently as a group. And this is one of the simplest dissipative structures. It's a way of getting rid of energy by p things deciding to cooperate. So where we saw that initially there was this heat death of the universe, that systems tended to decay, to go to a maximum entropy, to, go, to dissipate, to break apart, now we see that if you pump energy into them, they may suddenly go from that mode into one in, of cooperation, in which there's sort of a whole cooperative phenomena taking place. Now, you can go from there on to other forms of dissipative structure, like a vortex in a river, or, or a living cell. A cell is the same thing. You, you supply nutrients and energy, and essentially the environment flows into the cell and flows out again as waste products. You have a constant flowing in, a constant flowing out, and, and, a, and a living cell is essentially a flow. It's a stability within, within a constant flow. If you look at a, um, a fountain playing in, in, a, you know, in the center of a city, the fountain is, is stable because it constantly changes, because water is constantly flowing through it. We normally think of structures as being things that are static, things that are there, like, like a sculpture. And if you hit a sculpture, you bang it, it falls apart. But these dissipative structures are structures that are stable out of the very fact that they're constantly changing, that they're constantly being reborn, which is what happens with a, with a fountain of water. In Prigogine's world, order emerges unpredictably out of chaos. Nature therefore recovers the creative spontaneity which was denied by classical determinism. It can surprise us. And at the same time, the scientist also recovers his creative freedom. No longer is he reduced to spelling out universal rules which nature is constrained to obey. Now he lives in an evolving universe where something new and unpredictable can always happen. We are living through a period of transition. A period of transition in which the content and the formulations of the laws of science will undergo and is undergoing a dramatic change. Indeed, we see now more and more the importance of unstable dynamical systems. For unstable dynamical systems, we never can predict what will happen. In, in the future, 
knowing the initial conditions. The content of the world is not in the simple repetitive motions which Newton and Galileo have used, uh, fortunately, as the prototypes of dynamics. And once this is understood, we see now that therefore the dynamical laws, which were deterministic and time-reversible, because of the instability, become probabilistic and time-oriented. And therefore, the concept of a natural law is changing. Instead of being able to conceive the complete eternity, our knowledge of nature is a window on time. And therefore, I expect that the next generation will see a very deep change in the formulation of the basic laws, because irreversibility can no more be I would say, relegated to an illusion or to some artifact. With irreversibility, the human perspective returns to science. In the billiard ball universe of classical science, there was no room for the subtlety, the complexity, the multiplicity of our experience. In the idea of dissipative structures, I think that we can comfortably see an image of ourselves and our societies. Prigogine science, for me, therefore, is a step towards the reunification of culture and of knowledge. Before, we had the idea that small causes bring small effects. We had some view of a linear universe. But a universe far from equilibrium is also a highly nonlinear universe. Because if it would be close to equilibrium, then we could linearize and we would have linear equations. And everybody, even not being a great mathematician, knows that linear equations have only one solution. But far from equilibrium, you have many solutions. And therefore, discovering the non-equilibrium universe, we discover a universe whose richness is extraordinarily rich in comparison with the classical universe. And this leads to a new dialogue with nature, because we can then act on the bifurcation, the points when one solution becomes a different solution. We can hope to achieve great results, even with small causes. And that is, I think, something which will slowly penetrate and is penetrating already slowly into the fields of human activities in ecology and economics and other fields. The age of science has in many ways been the age of physics. The great discoveries which initiated the scientific revolution of the 17th century were discoveries in physics, and the enormous success of Newtonian mechanics virtually ensured that the methods of physics would set the standard for all of the sciences. This fact was to have momentous consequences for the life sciences in particular. In the Aristotelian biology, which held sway before the scientific revolution, life was accounted for in terms of its inherent purpose. But when physics became the role model for biology, organisms began to be seen as complex machines which could best be understood in terms of their constituent parts. This reductive, analytical approach led to many discoveries about the subsystems of which organic nature is composed, culminating in our own day in the spectacular successes of molecular biology and genetics. But mechanistic biology also left much unexplained. For example, the problem of form. 
Rupert Sheldrake is a British plant physiologist whose primary concern is this very question. How do organisms develop their forms? In 1981, he brought out a book called A New Science of Life, in which he put forward a bold hypothesis to account for morphogenesis, or the coming into being of form. The respected British scientific journal Nature found Sheldrake's proposal so shocking that they declared that his book should be burned. But before we get to that, listen first to Rupert Sheldrake's account of why mechanistic biology cannot account for morphogenesis. Everyone agrees that we don't understand the way in which embryos develop and so on, but it's assumed that sooner or later these will be fully explicable in terms of regular mechanistic biology. The problem with this is that if the whole is nothing but the sum of the parts, then if you take away parts, for example, if you cut off half an organism, then you've got half an organism, not a whole one, and you've only got half the parts, not all of them, and that ought to be the end of the matter. But such an organism, for example, cut even a little bit off an organism, take a cutting from a tree, a small cutting, which is only a fragment of the whole tree, and that can become a whole, a new whole. It can grow into an entire tree. Now, this is something that certainly doesn't exist in any machines that we know of. You can't chop a computer into small pieces and expect each piece to regenerate into a whole computer. But you can chop a flatworm into many pieces and each piece becomes a new worm. And you can cut a plant into pieces, each piece becomes a new plant. So I think mechanism fails in the realm of morphogenesis, the coming into being a form, where more complexity comes from less, and where if you remove parts of embryos or cut parts off organisms like plants or lower animals, they can regenerate the lost parts. Rupert Sheldrake called his solution to this problem the hypothesis of formative causation. It suggested, and this was the part which so mightily offended the editors of Nature, that the process of morphogenesis depends on a kind of collective memory which links organisms across both time and space. What my own approach is based on is the concept of morphogenetic fields or form-shaping fields, a concept first put forward in 1922 and one which is fairly widely accepted. It's present. The concept is used in most orthodox textbooks of embryology. The idea of fields that shape or mould the development of living things and which have a holistic property like magnetic and other fields. You can't chop a field up into little bits. It's a kind of continuous thing which is intrinsically holistic. The idea is that as an arm develops, it's shaped by an arm field. As a leg develops, it's shaped by a leg field. That The fields have a kind of invisible structure which moulds the developing organism. If you cut a bit off, the field remains associated with the remaining pieces, and that's why regeneration can occur. Well, this idea has been around for over 60 years, but the problem is that no one's ever been able to explain very clearly what these fields are why they have the forms they do, and where they come from. What I'm suggesting, and this is the new part of the hypothesis, is that the fields are influenced by the forms of previous members of the species. So, for example, the tomato field is influenced by previous tomatoes, and the rabbit field is influenced by previous rabbits. So the field shapes a developing rabbit um, 
is a kind of invisible average of the forms of previous rabbits of the same breed. And the connection between them is given by a process called morphic resonance, a direct influence of like upon like across space and time. This is the original feature of the theory, and it's something that is very radical compared with our usual way of thinking, because not only of the idea of action at a distance in space, an idea that we're used to from electromagnetism and gravity, but the idea of action at a distance in time, from the past to the present, a kind of built-in memory within the species, so that each species has a kind of built-in memory pool. Each member draws upon it, each individual of the species, and in turn contributes to it. How close is your theory, do you think, to Jung's theory of the collective unconscious and the archetypes of the collective unconscious? I think it's very close. This theory I'm putting forward applies not only to form but also behavior. So I'd say that within a species there's a pool of past experience and behavior that members of the species draw upon. And when we get to the behavioral realm, you see, we're much closer to Jung. Incidentally, one of the ways the theory can be tested, probably the easiest way to see how it can be tested, is in the realm of behavior. Because the theory says that if you train rats to learn a new trick in one place, say in Toronto, then rats all over the world, for example in London and Paris and in Australia, should be able to learn the same thing more quickly, just because you've trained those rats there. The more you train, the easier it should get everywhere else. There's already some evidence for this, and this is obviously a very radical postulate, but also one that can quite easily be tested. In the human uh, realm, the same thing should apply, and so it should be easier to learn things that other people have already learned, and there should indeed be an influence by morphic resonance from many past members of the species, not only in our patterns of movement and behavior, but also in our patterns of speech and thought. And so here you see the whole hypothesis becomes quite close to the sort of thing that Jung was talking about in his idea of the collective unconscious. Has any of the attempt at experimentation since you published the book Born Fruit? Yes, there have been a number of experiments have actually been done. And on the whole, they've been encouraging. I wouldn't say that there's any completely convincing, definitive evidence for the hypothesis at this stage, but I would say that the preliminary experiments have been uh, certainly encouraging. Most of them have concerned human learning, and one I could mention just as an example, uh, some work that's been done in Madison, Wisconsin, by Dr. Arden Marlberg, concerned the learning of Morse code. He did some experiments with groups of subjects who didn't know Morse code, um, people who hadn't learned it. He eliminated, he didn't use the letters S and O because a lot of people know SOS in Morse code, but nothing else. And found out whether people could learn more easily the regular Morse code that millions of people have already learned, um, compared with a newly invented code that in theory should have been equally easy to learn. According to more, the morphic resonance idea, it should be easier to learn the regular Morse code precisely because millions have already learned it. And this is indeed what Dr. Marlberg found in his experiments. How do you see your theory in terms of other theories in contemporary science? 
I've chosen, for example, without wishing in any way to create some kind of Procrustean new paradigm, to speak to you and Bohm and Prigogine, thinking that all of you are somehow part of a new natural philosophy. How do you yes. see yourself in terms of other contemporaries with whom you may be lumped by others as well as by me? I think that what I'm saying has a lot in common with the ideas of David Bohm. And he and I, in fact, have had quite a number of discussions about this. Uh, it's quite possible to think of the morphogenetic fields in terms of the implicate order. And in his new formulations of, the, of his theory, he says that the explicate order, what actually happens, feeds back and influences the implicate order. So the implicate order has a kind of built-in cumulative memory. So his theory in its new form leads to more or less the same predictions as the hypothesis of formative causation. So there's an extremely good agreement there, and I think that the two approaches are very complementary. He deals with things that I don't, and I deal with things that he doesn't, and I think they actually fit together very well in spite of the different terminology. Prigogine is in interested in emphasizing the open-endedness of developing systems that goes beyond the narrow deterministic kinds of approaches that classical physics had and indeed classical thermodynamics. The way in which small fluctuations can be amplified into large differences, how patterns can arise from unstable physical things. Uh, that again is very compatible with what I'm saying because I myself think the morphogenetic fields operate by imposing patterns on these unstable physical processes that these small differences at the beginning which are amplified into whole patterns through positive feedbacks what Prigogine calls order through fluctuations is uh, extremely compatible in my opinion with the approach that I, I myself am working on so I do think there's quite a lot in common I do think there's a general movement and I think this movement is mostly uh, in the last 20 or 30 years been, the lead has mostly been taken by physicists because physics has really definitively moved beyond the old style reductionistic mechanistic world view within biology the success of molecular biology has made many biologists more mechanistic in their approach than, than uh, many would have been 40 or 50 years ago and so the new holistic paradigm has had less influence in biology, uh, at least on the mainstream orthodoxy, but it's had a continued influence throughout the whole of the present century. And I see myself as working within that holistic tradition that has been in biology and has been developing in biology for a long time. The final theory which I want to consider tonight is called the Gaia Hypothesis, after Gaia, the Greek goddess of the Earth. It was developed by British scientist and inventor James Lovelock, and it holds that the Earth is not just an environment where life evolved. It is an environment which was created cooperatively by life. Here is Jim Lovelock's story of how the theory developed. Gaia started 
way back in the 1960s as far as I was concerned because I was working at that time for NASA with a colleague, Diane Hitchcock, and we were given the rather peculiar task of assessing the scientific validity of the life detection experiments that were being proposed for Mars. And uh, it was really quite funny because they were all amazingly geocentric. Perhaps it isn't surprising when you think about it. NASA was faced with the problem, we've got to find life on Mars, so let's hire us 50 experts uh, and we'll get it solved. Because that's how they treated their engineering and everything else. Why not life? The trouble was, of course, there aren't any experts on life on Mars. There's only experts on life on Earth. And experts, as you know, tend to be very narrowly specialized people who are familiar with a given form of life. And I was used to, I kind of paraphrase it somewhat libelously by saying, Diane and I went along to interview a famous parasitologist, uh, Professor X, and asked him to show us his life detector. And he showed us a beautifully designed little stainless steel cube. And we said, Professor X, what does this do? And he says, oh, it's my life detector. And we said, but how does it detect life? Well, he said, it traps fleas. So I said, fleas? Well, how do you know there's fleas on Mars? He said, look, there's this in total amazement. He said, but everybody knows. Mars is nothing but desert. And wherever there's deserts, you find camels. And there's no animals with as many fleas as a camel. This is my life detector. Well, it wasn't quite as bad as that, but I think that gives you some of the flavor. So Diane and I went away and thought, well, we'd better do something better than this. How on earth are we going to detect life? And we thought about looking for an entropy reduction. And that seemed a bit uh, highfalutin and far-fetched. But then it occurred to me, you could find a planetary entropy reduction by just looking at the planet's atmosphere, just do a chemical compositional analysis. You see, if the planet had life on it, that life would be bound to use the atmosphere as a sort of conveyor belt for products and raw materials. And such a use would change the atmosphere in a way that would make it recognizably different from that of a planet that didn't have life on it, which would be near what's called the chemical equilibrium state. And it so happened that at the time we had these thoughts, some infrared astronomers were looking at Mars through an infrared telescope and found, gave us a detailed atmospheric analysis. And this showed, in fact, that it was close to chemical equilibrium and, by our theory, of course, lifeless. This wasn't much use to NASA, of course, but it did draw Lovelock's attention to the improbable composition of the Earth's atmosphere and made him ask how such unstable gases could even coexist. Just consider two of the gases, oxygen and methane. Oxygen's present at 21%, methane's present at one and a half parts per million, a mere trace, you may think. But their coexistence at a steady state in an atmosphere represents an anomaly measured in hundreds of orders of magnitude as far as its disequilibrium goes. You see, for methane and oxygen to coexist in an atmosphere on a planet at that steady state means that something must be making the methane and something must be making the oxygen because they react together and they use each other up. And knowing the volume of the Earth's atmosphere and the rate of reaction which you can calculate from the intensity of sunlight in the Earth's atmosphere, because it's that which causes them to react, you can calculate that the something must be introducing no less than 
a thousand million tons of methane every year into the atmosphere and something must also be introducing something like 4,000 million tons of oxygen every year into the atmosphere to account for the losses from the reaction of these two substances. And there just aren't any non-living processes that can do that in an atmosphere uh, such as the Earth. So the answer must be that there's life. Looking at the Earth that way was as much a scientific revelation, I think, as the view that astronauts had. I mean, the astronauts, when they first saw the Earth, many of them said, Rush de Schweikert was one, my God, the thing must be alive, it's so beautiful, it's so, so, uh, so much a whole. But what we were seeing was a hard science suggestion. You see, to keep all those unstable gases at a perfect steady state requires a lot of organization. But much more remarkable than this, how on earth could an atmosphere that was a bit like the gases that go into the intake manifold of an internal combustion engine be just right for life? I mean, this was even more extraordinary. And, of course, that's what made me think, well, maybe we're looking at it the wrong way round. Uh, the atmosphere isn't an environment for life. It's something that life has made as an environment for itself. It's something it has chosen and deliberately keeps going because it likes it that way. And that, of course, was the Gaia hypothesis, and that's how it started. Can you explain some of the Gaian mechanisms? For sure. example, perhaps the oxygen-methane cycle? I could, but that's a more difficult one. Let me explain one of the ones that we know best about, and that's the CO2 one, because it's, there's a lot of contemporary interest in that too. You see, one of the more convincing bits of evidence for Gaia was the constancy of the climate throughout geological time. For three and a half thousand million years, the time that life has been on Earth, the temperature has been constant, the climate's been constant, and yet the sun has been steadily warming up. And this is, I think, one of the strongest arguments in favor of regulation. So how did it happen? Well, one geochemist, Jim Walker, tried to explain it on purely geological grounds. He said, or rather accepted, the geological evidence that right back in the beginning, when life started, there was a great deal of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, perhaps as much as 30% of the atmosphere was CO2. And that's what kept the Earth warm and enabled life to get its start. He then said that the simple process of weathering that's the reaction of carbon dioxide with calcium silicate rock, uh, which removes carbon dioxide from the air and deposits it in the sea as limestone, would account for a steady diminution of CO2 over time, which would exactly equal the rate of rise of solar luminosity. It was a nice theory and a good try, but when you put the numbers in it, it wouldn't work. And I thought that he'd done exactly the right thing. The only thing he'd done wrong was to leave life out. You see, life is very much in the business of weathering, of rock digesting, and so on and so forth. And Jim Walker's process can be made to work beautifully if you put life there. If you analyze the soil in most places on the Earth, you'll find that its carbon dioxide content is 30 times higher 
than that of the atmosphere. So on the soil, in the soil, everywhere, life is pumping CO2 out of the air as hard as it can in order to get it to react better with a calcium silicate rock and get Jim Walker's reluctant chemistry to proceed. In other words, Gaia facilitates the process that the geologists had envisaged. And without life, it wouldn't happen. That is a feedback system which is operated uh, right the way back from the beginning. And it's an intriguing one because it only has about 100 million years to go. You see, CO2 is now down to one thousandth the level it was back in the beginning. It's an enormous change. And that's the reduction needed to compensate for the climatic uh, constancy in face of the increasing solar output. And in a hundred million years' time, in order to keep constancy, you'll have to have zero CO2, which is inconsistent with plant growth, as you will appreciate. And so Gaia will have to develop other mechanisms of, uh, of cooling. Jim Lovelock's sublime assurance that Gaia will find some new way to cool the Earth seems an appropriate note on which to end tonight's program, for it shows that the living earth really deserves the name of a god, not in the old animistic and anthropomorphic sense, but in the sense that nature really is a single living being. And this image of nature as something alive, intelligent, and responsive, in one way or another unites all four of the people whom you've been listening to tonight. Next week, in the final program of the series, I'll examine the implications of this new science from the standpoint of religion and philosophy and ask whether a new, more unified knowledge is now within view. You've been listening to part two of Religion and the New Science, written and presented by David Cayley. Technical operations for this evening's broadcast were by Tom Shipton and Nick Antonacci. Production was by Jill Eisen, with the assistance of Alison Moss. Transcripts of this three-part series are available for $5. If you'd like to order a copy, write Religion and Science, care of CBC Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W 1E6. Enclose a check or money order for $5 payable to CBC Transcripts. Please no cash through the mail. And please be prepared to wait six to eight weeks for delivery. And we've also printed a reading list in case you'd like to pursue some of the topics discussed in this series. And you can get that free by writing to us at Ideas. Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Join us again tomorrow night for part two of Radical Preachers, Radical Politics. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. Mm -hmm.